UFC 275 is in the books. We've got an awful lot to talk about, so we're not going to mince any words on the intro. It's late in the afternoon on Sunday, June 12th, here in Abbotsford. It is damn near midnight in London. I'm E. Spencer Kite. He is Harry Powell. These are the next day takeaways. Well, boys and girls, UFC 275 sure was a whole lot of fun last night in Singapore, from Singapore Indoor Stadium in Singapore, Singapore, just in case no one was familiar with, with where Singapore was or where that fight card took place. I sat and watched the event with a stream similar to this running and headphones in my ears and my mic connected so I could talk to my co-host of this show, one of the smartest men I know in this sport, the wonderful Harry Powell. Good day, sir. How are you on this nearly midnight evening for you in London? Hello, sir. Um, I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Um, I uh, I feel like I'm turning into a little bit of a Sean Sheehan in that um, midnight seems to be like the the middle of my day now, uh, and such such is life when you're when you're covering MMA. But yes, I, I echo your sentiments that two seven five as a fan was an absolute bag of fun from top to bottom. Really, it was there was a lot of good fights as a fan, a lot of good fights. Yeah, we're going to run through the card real quickly and we're going to go sort of from from bottom to top just to get us to the main event, which will then launch us into larger overall talking points. Jocelyn Edwards wins the first fight, kind of a, a not a lot fight with, with not a lot happening against Ramona Pasquale. Silvana Gomez Juarez does not get armbarred, gets a first round stoppage win with a beautiful right hand. She actually finished the deal this time around against Liang Na. Kyung Ho Kang comes out, gets a unanimous decision win over Baccarel Dana. Uh, Brendan Allen defeats Jacob Malkoon in a closer fight than I think most were expecting. We will touch on that fight when we get into bigger things. Mahashrite, 22-year-old Chinese prospect off Dana White's Contender Series, wins his debut, a lovely first-round knockout against Steve Garcia, put a right hand on his chin, put Garcia face down on the canvas. He was not the last person we saw in that position on Saturday night. Uh, Joshua Kulibau closes out the prelims with a split decision win over Sungwoo Choi in a split decision that is probably one of those ones where we'll all look back and be like, that didn't need to be a split decision. I think Kulibau won pretty clean, showed some improvements, continues to take a little step forward here at Featherweight. And then we get to the main card. Kicked off, Jack Della Maddalena gets a win over Ramazan Amiv, a first round stoppage win, navigates some tricky spots. To get the finish, a good second appearance and, and second straight first-round victory for Della. Jake Matthews comes out and stops the Andre Fialo momentum with a second-round stoppage win. Zhang Wei Li knocks out Yoana Yanjaychik, spinning back fist. JJ ends up face down on the canvas and then retires. Co-main event of the evening, Valentina Shevchenko ekes one out against Tyler Santos, a split decision win to retain her flyweight title. And in the main event of the evening, with 30 seconds left in the fight, 30 seconds before he is going to lose a unanimous decision, Yuri Prohoshka gets Glover Teixeira to tap to a no-hooks rear-naked choke to become the new light heavyweight champion of the world. It was a wildly entertaining night of fights. We, we were on a, on a stream for the duration of it. We we were chatting the whole way through, 
And I feel like, and, and we were joined by Ian O'Neill and Sean Sheehan at some point, and it, somewhere down the line, we will broadcast these things on Severe MMA at some point, once we get, you know, a little more coordinated and organized and we're not having viewing parties and, and things of that nature. But throughout the night, we just kind of, ev every fight felt like we went, oh, that's a bit of fun. That's, oh, I like that. This is, this is what we like. This is, this was one of those cards that reminded me why I love fight cards and why I really don't even necessarily care who's on the card. You give me some good fights and I'm in. I'm I'm sold. You give me good product, you give me entertaining action, and I'm sold. That's not to say that this wasn't bolstered by the names and the stakes and the ramifications, but just a really fun night of fights, top to bottom. Yes, it certainly was. And I think my take on what you've just said, and I actually agree with it, and I really like the way that you've just said it, is this. I like fighting. The thing that draws me to the names and the stories is not only that generally when, like, let's take a Glover Teixeira, right? He has been at the elite of the elite level in his weight class for many, many, many years. And that elite skill level generally begins to pertain media focus, stories, and all these sorts of things. So everything sort of becomes this self-encompassing rapture of 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 fanfare, right? For and and you know, go and look at the main card, right? Yeri, okay, he hasn't been in the UFC a long time, but he's been knocking fools out all over the world for a long time. Glover, I don't need to say anything more. Valentina Shashenko, we all know and love her for her elite skill levels, and you know, we've become to love her as a person. Um, but the fanfare. And everything else, the stories, whatever, it all comes good. It all helps. It all helps in the marketing of the sport, the marketing of the cards. But if you go and look at a Mahasha Tate versus Steve Garcia, if you go and ask a fella in a bar, do you know who Conor McGregor is? The answer is probably yes. If you ask him who Masha Tate and Steve Garcia is, they're going to get confused with Misha Tate, right? Right. So, shout, you shout know. Out Shout out to Sean Sheehan each and every time. Shout out to Ian O'Neill each and every time. So I think what your, your your point is very valid. I think you've kind of summed up the way that you cover the sport in in that sentence. And that's that if you put if you make a fight, you match make a fight, and it's two guys that we've never heard of, but they're evenly matched with good styles that meld well and they create a good fight, we're down to watch it. Right. Yeah. And this card had a lot of that. Scratch the first fight. If you want to look at low-level fighting, that's the fight to look at, right? Then we go through the card, and the level just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And I think something that was interesting in this fight card specifically is that, and that we haven't seen in others, is that actually the skill level did kind of ascend as we moved through the fight card, right? And that's something that we really haven't seen in a long time. Erin Blanchfield opened up the card, you know, what was it, two or three weeks ago. She's not at the same level as a Jocelyn Edwards or a Ramona Pasquale, right? She's a much higher bracket of fighter than that. And yet she was the curtain jerker. You know, these things happen in MMA. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to take too far away from that. But... Do you want me 
to go straight in with the the overarching theme of, of what I took for the card, or do you want so to fill we'll get that? To the overall, we'll, we'll get to the overarching theme here in a minute because this is the sure. next of takeaways, and this is sure. where we sit and kind of pontificate about what we talked about during the event, what we came uh-huh. away with afterwards. Before we get to that, you mentioned the card really building, and yourself and Sean had a great discussion about building fight cards on Speaker's Corner. Subscribe to the Severe MMA Patreon account, you cowards. It's well worth it. Go do it. And I think you're right. This is one of those cards that it felt like the progression as we continued working up the card, we got to slightly more meaningful, slightly more significant fight each time out. And for whatever reason, that continued. When that happens and we get it the way we did on Saturday, it just kind of feels right. It doesn't have to always be that way to me in, in terms of building fight cards because there are athletes where the personality, the popularity, the longevity that they've shown kind of sometimes dictates. We're going to see next weekend in Austin, Texas, right? Donald Cerrone and Joe Lozon are the co-main event. By divisional significance at lightweight, it is not a particularly significant bout. But because they are big names, they are the right fight in that position set in the table for Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett. This card to me last night felt very much like well-built, proper progression that carries you into the names you know. And it happened to fortuitously play out with really good fights where each fight, there didn't, there didn't feel like a letdown anywhere in there that we were sort of slowed and taken aback where where the momentum was killed right there wasn't one of those heavyweight fights that's just on the televised prelims because it's big boys and we get to the third round and it's a slog and all of a sudden we're like really we're now now we've got a ramp back up it just progressed the last thing i will say before we get to the overarching and i wanted to touch on this this particular gentleman with you because he doesn't really factor into our larger conversation is Jack Della Maddalena, who you and I were both high on going in, but also kind of wary of in terms of, you know, limited, limited number of fights in the UFC. First fight is against Pete Rodriguez, who takes the fight on four days notice, has five, has four previous fights, goes in and just gets absolutely lamped. And so it's very difficult to take too much away from Della's performance there. But he goes out on Saturday and he gets a first round finish over Ramazan Amiv becomes the first guy to finish him, has to navigate, as I said, off the top, some some tricky spots, a couple questionable spots. But overall, what were your thoughts on Della and, and where do you think he fits kind of going forward as a 25-year-old now on a 12-fight winning streak? I think it's far too early to, to, to say where he fits. No idea. Absolutely no idea. I've not seen enough. We've seen a contender series bout We've seen him beat up a bin man, and now we've seen him come from. So, yeah, we've learned something. I think to me, this is the fight that we learned something about Jack Della Maddalena. Um, you know, I wrote the the severe spotlight article on him whenever that fight with Pete Rodriguez was, mostly because it's not often that you see that level of style on a fighter right and now okay it was a mismatch um but regardless the raw ability and the raw skill set was still there to be shown um 
in this fight against Ramzan Amiv, it kind of went how I think we expected it to. I don't think I expected the DAS to be as deep as it was, but um, what did I learn from this fight? Or, or what did I take? What was What's my thoughts on, on Dalla Leila, right? My thoughts are, if you allow him to get into a rhythm on the feet, it's going to take a really good fighter to either change that rhythm or knock him back. Um, I think he showed naivety in the grappling situations. I think that when he was uh, almost mat returned, he was four pointing, I believe, and he tried to Gramby through and go from back to chest to turn his hips in and go chest to chest, which would have landed him in a fantastically dominant position. Doing that against a guy that is known as having equally a naive skill set, but a significantly uh, more dominant grappling game than his striking game was naive to begin with. And that's really where the mistakes began was that Granby. Uh, he ended up at a front headlock and the DAS was locked in before Della Madalena even had a chance to open up his shoulders. Now, Madalena did the right things eventually. And I don't think, given the situation, he was still on his feet, right? He was leaning down, bearing his weight over the choke. That's difficult for Amiv to get the pressure to, to really cut an angle and you know, grab his legs and hold his hands in the right place and, you know, to really, really nail on that choke. But either way, Ramzan Amiv is not the most potent submission threat in that division. Uh, in that middleweight division, we should say, right? The middleweight. That's right, isn't it? The middleweight. Um, but <laughs> shout out Sean Sheen. Um, Always. Yeah. But uh, I thought that it's offered us a glimpse into some of the personality traits of Madalena. He's not going to give up easy. He's going to stay cool, calm, and collected in those tough spots. And he's going to attempt to work his way out of them. Um, it also seemed to stoke a little bit of a fire in him. I think there was a bit of embarrassment in there. Now, I, you know, that's an ab that's a very heavy word for me to use for a man that's never stepped into a cage and fought Ramzan Amiv. Um, but it felt as though he himself was like, ah, fuck, I probably shouldn't have been caught in this, lads. And as soon as he got back to his feet and uh, and, and created some distance, he really turned up the pace and put Ramzan Amiv away. So a few things I want to just unpack there before we get into the rest of it. I want to start by saying that your initial comment of it's far too early is A, exactly correct. B, why I like having you on this show, why I like having these conversations with you. And C, something we need to do far more often within this sport. We are at such a point, and I wrote about it a few times last night, and it's something I'm trying to be cognizant of. We are far too quick in this sport to want to decide where everybody fits, what their upside is, what their ceiling is, what their floor is, and make decisions on these athletes in the spur of the mo in the heat of the moment, based off the last performance or even a couple of performances. And I think the most important thing is to say, I'm not sure, as you did, I'm not sure where he fits, but we learned some things. I write the way I write. I talk the way I talk about the sport because as we've covered on this show and your show and various points, everything is about answering questions for me. I go into every fight wanting more answers to learn more about these athletes. And I think you're correct. 
that we learned a lot about Jack Della Maddalena on Saturday night. Apologize for the background noise, as per usual, as people that listen to my podcasts know. My neighbors only like doing yard work once I start recording podcasts, so they are currently blowing their driveway free of limited debris because it's been lovely here for three days. So I apologize for the air blower in the background. Shout out to the Clausens. I do think you're right, and, and it is a heavy word to throw around embarrassed, but I do think there was a little bit of hubris in there in the grappling. He said afterwards, ah, I knew I was out, no problem. I knew I'd get clear of it, no problem. You and I both kind of chuckled when he said it because like, really, it, it didn't look like you knew you were out, no problem. It looked like you needed to fight your way out. But he did then do what he needed to do. And that was the takeaway for me with the Pete Rodriguez fight as well. As you said, he's in there with a guy on four days notice that he should go out there and, and absolutely murk. The fact that he did it is, is the takeaway for me. Because we've seen many times where guys go out there and they're against someone that's overmatched. And it doesn't play out that way. He handled business that night. He handled business Saturday. I'm very interested to see what the next step up is because this was a big step up. He's not one of these guys off the contender series that was starting out kind of at the lower third of the division. He was originally booked against Warley Alves. Ramazan Amiv was 20 and five coming into this fight. Respected guy. Jack gets him out of there in the first round. I got a feeling he's going to get a step up in competition. And the next time we see him is going to be another one of those chances to to learn a bit more about Jack Della Maddalena. You're shaking your head in disagreement. You would like to see him stay levelish? Yeah, I would, yeah. I think um let's see him against another wrestler. Let's see him against another wrestler that's not on his level striking. Let's see him against a slightly more potent submission specialist. The thing that and it doesn't worry me necessarily, that's the wrong word to use, but for me if I'm Della Maddalena, I'm 25 years old, or if I'm the UFC, sorry, if I've got a 25 year old kid who is bursting out of a scene that is already pretty hot, but is only getting hotter, and you have the opportunity to have a new kind of guy at 170, right? Who's which is already a roasting division, and you have a new interesting name that's sort of creeping around. Let's not go and put him against you know, name the person, right? Let's not go and put him against somebody that has the ability to stop the hype train right now. Something that always, always, always barrels around in my head when I'm thinking about matchmaking is what Mr. Sean T. Sheehan stands for. Uh, and he says, we, I want to see the best fight the best when they are at their best, right? Della Maddalena is a far and away not at his best. Right. If I'm getting caught in DOS chokes as naively as that from front headlock, I'm not near my best. Right. And that's not to say that it wasn't just an honest mistake and we'll not see it again. But let's give him the chance. Right. Let's put him in against somebody that he can prove that it was just an honest mistake. And let's see that maybe two or three times. There is no need to rush a 25 year old. There really isn't. This isn't Andre Fialio. Well, there was no need to rush Andre Fialo, as we as we found out on Saturday. But that sort of gets us into the the Jack Della Maddalena might be an honest mistake part. Gets us into our overarching thing that we talked about throughout our streaming and watching this event last night. And it's something you and I, we talked about the first time you were on this show. We talk about it basically 
every fight night, whether it's just through messages on WhatsApp or after the fact. And that is fight IQ and decision-making because it feels to both of us that those two things are becoming such critical, crucial factors in determining the outcomes of these fights, in dictating how things transpire inside the cage, um, giving us pictures and better ideas about athletes based on some of that decision-making. And Saturday night just felt like an absolute buffet of examples of sitting here and going, either what the hell was that? And this person is is potentially pissing away very good opportunities, maybe a whole fight, or, well, that was lovely. Give me more of that. Well done, sir or ma'am, in the case of Zhang Weili. Before we go individual, athlete by athlete a little bit, on the whole, can you just give people your, I guess, maybe thesis on the importance and and why decision-making and fight IQ are becoming such a critical factor in these fights? Yeah, I think, I think it's quite simple. If I'm honest, I think that fight IQ is one of the primary determinations as to whether you'll succeed at a high level or not, because, you know, let's look at, and I don't mean to pick anyone out and this isn't, you know, disrespectful or whatever, but you look at uh, William Knight versus what's your fucking man's name? He just stomped out that fella that shouldn't love so everyone. Thank you. You look at those two fighters, right? And if you had a list, if we were, if we were playing the UFC game, right, and you had a hundred XP points to spend, those two fellas, I've got a hundred and one XP points spent in athleticism, right, and they have a ton of power that comes with that, a ton of speed, a ton of explosiveness. And in the in, in William Knight's case, not a fantastic fight IQ. In Alonzo Menafield, you know, slightly, slightly better than that. If you look at somebody like a Jose Aldo, who maybe doesn't have anywhere near that amount of athleticism, and that's not to say he's not an athlete, he definitely is, but his fight IQ points are drastically high. Right. You look at early Conor McGregor, fight IQ off the fucking charts. Right. You look at somebody like an uh, an uh, an Anderson Silva, the same. If you take a look at most champions that you've seen in the UFC, most top five contenders that you have in the UFC, their fight IQ is genuinely pretty fucking good. Now, why is that important? Well, again, without going into specifics, but I'm going to I'm going to use an example, and it's our mate Francisco Trinaldo. Right. If you have a fighter hurt, or if you're in a situation, your fighting IQ will allow you to assess the dangers or opportunities of a certain situation and allow you to choose which exit, entry, or transition from a phase of fighting is required for the highest benefit with the lowest risk, right? Somebody like a Francisco Trinaldo has Danny Roberts doing the chicken dance. And instead of just 
patiently, calmly looking for the shot that will either drop Danny Roberts and allow him to swarm him and land his ground and pound and do the thing, or pick the shot that just flatlines him, he shoots him for a double leg. And shoots him for a double leg at Francisco Ronaldo pace of a however old he is, right? What does that do? Well, if we go back and watch that fight, it allows Danny Roberts to survive the entire fight. And he right. was hurt multiple times during the fight. Now, if we look at somebody like uh, Della Maddalena, right? What does he do? Well, he tries the Granby role. If he looks back at that, he's going to question his own fight IQ. Right? He's going to question, why was that the best decision? No, I don't think it was the best decision. And he can sit with his coaches and say, well, what do we do instead? Right? Well, what you do instead is you turn your elbows in, you get back to the inside space and you fight from uh, a clinch situation rather than from getting yourself dust. Um, but my, my overall thesis is MMA is becoming a far more level playing field in terms of overall understanding of what the modern MMA game is right now. Now, there are facets and there are explosions and there are developments all of the time. This is natural. But the general progression of things, the rate of the skill acquisition at sort of a, a, an amateur level pushing through to pro and then the top level is pretty much the same. I think gone are the days that you're going to find, uh, let's take, you know, Alex Pahea, who's now five and one, he's fighting on 276. He doesn't not know how to, one, perform a double leg. Two, I bet you he knows how to finish a rear naked choke. He knows how to stuff a takedown. He knows how to hip switch. He knows how to do all of the basic mechanics that pertain to an MMA fight. Obviously, he knows the striking stuff, right? I don't need to tell you that. But the question for an Alex Bahia and one of the interesting questions against Sean Strickland is what's his overall fight IQ like? What are the transitions like between phases of fighting? And I think that these more, more tertiary, more difficult to calculate, more difficult to measure skill sets are going. And, you know, Shawnee mentions one all the time and that's toughness. And I think he's absolutely right. These sorts of skill sets are going to be the differentiating factors between the elite of the elite in the next three to five years against the elite of right now. One of the other pieces that I always think about with it is, and, and want to clarify and want to make clear for people, Fight IQ isn't a set in stone thing. It's not a, this is your number and that's your number forever. You can absolutely increase your Fight IQ through many different ways, coaching, training, experience, all of those things. And somebody I think of in that regard and, and talked about a little bit following his his last win was Chase Hooper, right? 22, 23-year-old kid. You see the ability on the ground. You see the raw materials on the ground of a good jujitsu game. Looks for a lot of attacks. As that fighting IQ increases, as that experience increases, as that decision-making increases, he will go from chasing everything and rushing through everything to sitting down in some spots and settling down in some spots to work through progressions to actually get something and finish something rather than hunting and chasing and hoping he catches. And those are the things, and we talked about it, the first fight that really kind of jumped out about it was the Brendan Allen fight, where I think you and I both agree that Brendan Allen on total skill is a superior fighter 
to Jacob Malkoon, who thus far has shown good wrestling and not a lot else. But Brendan Allen continually in that fight put himself in bad positions and made sort of questionable choices in terms of defend the way he was defending takedowns. I remember there was one that he tried to just limp leg and kind of pull himself back to the cage. And it's just, it's a, it's a late, it felt like a lazy decision. And there were some lazy decisions throughout that fight that if he comes out on the wrong side of that, kind of like you're saying with, with Jack Della looking at the Granby roll, if he comes out on the wrong side of that, he's looking at that fight and going, how did I lose to that guy who I should have blown out of the water? And the answer is decision-making. The answer is fight IQ. And for somebody like Brendan Allen, I think that's the piece. That's the one piece to me that's missing is the decision-making and the IQ because we've seen the skills. We've seen the, the talents. We've seen that his striking continues to improve. But so far, it has just been kind of determining and figuring out the best way for him to approach these fights and fighting as, as close to within himself and almost succinctly as he can. He's a guy that, to me, tries to do a little bit too much sometimes and gets a little bit too high on himself and high on his abilities, and it gets away from him. And I think we almost saw it get away from him on Saturday, but he managed to get it back. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right that it's a moving goalpost. Fight IQ is a moving goalpost. And we could probably segment out some of the individual attributes that, that pertain to what Fight IQ is, right? And I think you mentioned one of them there. I mean, overall IQ is a big thing, you know, and, and this, the reason why fight IQ is such an intangible is because these fellas and ladies are getting punched in the head for a living. That doesn't do well for your general IQ, let alone your fight IQ, right? And experience is an absolutely massive thing in terms of your overall awareness of what's happening in situations. And, you know, my, my bastardized attempted definition of what fight IQ is, is essentially having enough experience to make measured and mature decisions in the variety of transitions that occur, occur during the sport, right? You look at some of the best fighters and when they're under fire, they look fine. You can see that they're looking forward. They're looking for a way out. They find their way out. When they're in a double leg, if they know that they're point, past the point of no return, they're looking to turtle. They're looking to limp leg. Maybe they're looking to get their frames in. They're looking towards the next step. Whatever the next step is, they're looking for it. They're not so uh, enraptured, if you will, with the moment of current. And they're not, as you said with Chase Super, chasing things. They're not, they're not looking for things that aren't there. They're not expecting. They're just assessing in the moment and moving based on the experience that they have and the tools that they have. Now, that's an incredibly difficult thing to breed into a fighter without fighting. And, you know, the risk that comes with fighting is you're not going to learn shit unless you're in bad spots. Right. Well, but the other, I, I would say another piece of that, though, yes, yes, bad spots are going to teach you a great deal. Close fights are always going to teach you more. Difficult fights are always going to teach you more than going out and running through somebody. I do think there is room and there are, are athletes we can point to that, even not being in bad spots 
we see them make those assessments and we see them make those decisions mm. from fight to fight of mm. this is a better way for me to approach this. This mm. is a piece that I don't need in my arsenal anymore or to not be Michelle Pajara comes to mind, right? Comes in, as you fellas like to say, as an absolute mad bastard. Rolling thunder, jumping off the fence, backflips the whole nine, and he loses two out of, two out of his first three because he's doing mad bastard things. Since he's dialed that back and taken it to be, I'm going to do 25% lunatic and 75% technique, big athleticism, hulking human being for the welterweight division, he's on a winning streak. And so I think there's that part too. It's not necessarily bad spot driven entirely, but it can also be poor result or just proper assessment of, wait, this is, this is costing me this thing. This is limiting me here. What happens if I remove it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, I, I do think it primarily does come from bad spots, but it doesn't have to be bad spots in under the lights. Right. I think one thing it comes is like having a good team, having a good coaching structure around you and being cognizant of what's happening in your training sessions. Right. Like you can go in and you can just get like, let's say you're down with Henry hoofed, right. You're probably going to get fucked up most days. Why? Because you're in a room full of elite level guys. And if you're like, let's take Ian Gary, you know, he's been very, and I could say this because he's been vocal about it. He's like, oh yeah, I get thrown around all over the gaff in, in the wrestling right. rounds. I get thrown all over the, I'm choking on, I'm, you know, I'm tapping all over the gaff in the, in the jujitsu stuff. And I think if you take that away and you say, okay, what's actually happening here, right? Maybe right. you film your rounds. Maybe you ask somebody, can you film my rounds for me? And maybe you go to Henry Hoof and you're like, ah, look here, mate. Why, why, why is this happening? Yeah. Or you chat to your training partners after and you say, why did that happen? How right. were you able to, what was this? What did you, how do I, what is this? And then next time you're rolling, next time you're wrestling, next time you're, you know, doing your live rounds, you try to answer those questions in a cognizant manner because you're recognizing situations that are occurring at uh, a repeated, you know, occurrence, right? right? That to me is where you build fight IQ because, and, and to your point about it moving, like, do you, when you watch the ADCC, right? The high, or even, you know, high level, high, high, high level MMA fights. Do people make mistakes? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. Are some of them unforced? Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. So, you know, fight IQ is not bulletproof and it's absolutely in transition. It's in transition. You know, a lot of fighters are the smartest person in the room as they're entering to the cage. That's a fallacy, but you know what I mean? When they enter the cage and they've been smacked around for three rounds, ask them again, what's the best position? What's the best transition? Right? Well, and as you said, we'll, we'll get to, I mean, one of the, the best fighters walking the planet currently and some questionable decision-making here in a little piece, but to go from somebody that had some, some questionable decision-making in Brendan Allen to somebody who fought exceptionally well and exceptionally smart in Jake Matthews, who comes out, hands Andre Fialo, a second round knockout loss looks terrific as sort of the 
I don't want to say slept on because I think people that truly follow the sport and truly understand who Jake Matthews is and the wealth of experience that he has and things like that, while still being 27 years old, recognize that this is a big step up for Andre Fialo. And it was a potential, it was a fight that had the potential to go this way. But what about Jake Matthews's effort on Saturday night really stood out for you, especially from what we're talking about here, the decision-making and the fight IQ standpoint of things. Yeah, so I think I would probably dial it back from the word fantastic effort. I think he looks really good, and I think that he has been able to show that he has progressed. And I think he's, you know, everyone said, oh, it's Jake Matthews 2.0. He's finally put it together. Has he? We're going to find out, right? We have seen him look brilliant. Right. We've seen him look brilliant in a number of fights. Oh, we've Sorry. Again, I've just, I've done the thing. We've seen him show splashes of brilliance in his fights. And then we go and see him get whacked by a fella that he absolutely shouldn't have, right? Or we see him in a fight that's closer than it should have been. Or we see him just go out and just have a, a, an off night. And look, these things happen in MMA. You can't be perfect always. We're going to talk about that when it comes to Valentina. But, you know, for Jake Matthews in that fight against Andre Filo, he used his knowledge of, okay, I've gotten into a few exchanges here and it's pretty hairy. He's cracking me pretty hard. I'm cracking him pretty hard. He looks like he's coming off worse, but this probably isn't the smartest way that I could do this. So he takes a slight step back and counters the counter. He pushes forward and lands some jabs. He makes sure that he's you know, he's, he's offering variety in his shots. He's making sure he's circling at the right time. He's making sure that he's offering a dilemma or he's offering, well, yeah, a dilemma of standing very, very close to the cage, which Fialo wants. That's exactly what he wants. He wants him on the cage. So it's very difficult for him to circle out, but Matthews is timing him perfectly. He's seeing the situations before they're happening and he's landing. And what did we see? Well, we saw Fialo on, on his face at the end of it, right? I think the thing that impressed me the most about Matthews in that fight was he made adjustments mid-fight based on his own health. Now, this could be because he's got uh, he's got reservations about his own chin, whether it's because of you know performances in past fights and how he's looked and things that have happened to him. But he actually, in in a similar fashion to Karolina Kovalkiewicz, right? He stepped in there. He felt what was happening during the fight, and he was like, actually. Not today. I'm going to make a change. And that change was, I'm not going to get into a war of attrition with this man. I'm just going to take step backs. I'm going to allow him to come to me. and I'm going to beat him at his own game. It was a very good performance. It was one of those efforts to me that, that reminded me of his upside. I, again, as we talked about earlier, don't want to overreact, don't want to say any of those things about 2.0 because, as you said, he can go out the next time and it just doesn't go his way and whatever the case may be. But but for a kid that has been and literally started in the UFC as a kid, as a 19-year-old coming off Tough Nations, has been around for a long time, very athletic, clearly has power, very good grappler as well. You have to like what you saw on Saturday night. You have to be interested in seeing what's next for him. And it becomes the like, all right, let me let me see what's next. Let me see if this is 2.0. That'll probably be whenever Jake Matthews steps in the cage again, that will be my one question for that fight. 
is was the fight at, at 275 the start of something new and different and progressing forward or was it just a really good effort on a night against a guy that lined up well and that's all we can ask for you said in there that that calling it brilliant probably isn't is probably an overstatement would it be an overstatement to say that Zhang Wei Li fought brilliantly and showed sound decision making no but maybe <laughs> so fair this i mean seriously this is this is why you're here i love it i think a fight is impossible solely based on one performance i think some of joanna's words after the fight allowed us to see into the mind of Joanna. And again, I don't, this, this is a complete intangible. I, I want to be an analyst. Uh, that's what I'm trying to become. Um, so I can't say, and I won't make solid, bold statements based on emotional outpourings of a lady that's been fighting for most of her life, just lost a fight via vicious knockout. And, you know, it's saying some things, these are intangibles. These are not solid facts. They are not X's and O's, but it just felt like if a fighter is coming into a fight of the magnitude that this fight had, and if 1% of your mind is thinking, if I lose this, I'm going to retire. That throws questions up to me. Now, Zhang Wei Li came out and did exactly what she needed to do to beat Yuani on Jacek. She hit harder than her. She exchanged more than her. She threw more variety. She changed the way she stood in her stance. She changed the way she used her stance. She fixed the grappling holes from the last fight. She took the opportunities that she did not take in the grappling last fight. Ground control time means absolutely nothing to anyone but me in this fight. You do not see Joanna Jacek on her back for that amount of time ever. Li Zhang was able to control her, land some shots, nothing crazy, but land some shots and force Joanna to be in spots that Joanna is not used to being under the lights. Now, Joanna gave a brilliant account of herself, as always. She was consistently fighting. She was consistently looking for inside space. She was consistently looking to get her hips underneath her and get back up, and she did. But I question, was that the best Joanna and Jacek that entered in the cage on Saturday night. And I honestly, I don't know. I'm not going to make an assumption. I'm not going to give it an answer because one side of that fight was Li Zhang making all of the right decisions, going back, assessing the first fight and saying, look, what went well here? What went well here is that I crack her really fucking hard <laughs> all of the time. So I'm going to do more of that. What went wrong here? Well, what went wrong is some of the grappling transitions, I allowed her too much inside space or I didn't offer her enough dilemmas. So I'm going to try and change that in the fight. Grand. What else happened? Well, what happened is I expended quite a bit of energy bouncing around the cage a lot 
And it meant that I wasn't quite able to be in the situation that I wanted to be, either to offer grappling or to throw shots as hard as I can do. I'm going to fix that as well. And she did. And for that, regardless of whoever turned up in Yuani and Jacek's shorts that night, Wei Li Zhang performed fantastically well. You do an incredible podcast called The One Man Booth prior to these pay-per-view shows where you break down and, and give deep insights on different fights. First one was Rosanami Yunus Carlos Barza, the rematch. The second one, again, a rematch. This fight here, Zhang Weili, Yoani, and Jacek. In watching it with you last night, having listened to the booth, obviously, a lot of what you pointed out, a lot of what you talked about came to pass in that fight. And I think both, I think it ties into what we were speaking about in terms of IQ, in terms of development, in terms of what you can see from fighters that are surrounded by good coaches, by the right people that are asking, as you said, of the Ian Gary thing, making the right decisions, asking the right questions afterwards to learn from those things. It felt very much to me in watching it, like Zhang Weili, we said it, I think, while we were watching it. She, thanks to her, she listened to the booth and, and is making all the right decisions. How difficult do you think that is for an athlete to go and make those those changes? Like, let's stay specific to this fight. How How difficult is it to fix those errors? in this amount of time, being as active as she's been against someone this high level? Because I think that speaks to the fight IQ piece of this. Well, I think it depends what, what the athlete is, right? It's it's a very difficult question. You know, if you ask, if you ask, I mean, let me just run through the card quickly. If you ask Brendan Allen to fix something and you ask Wei Li Zhang to fix something, you have two completely different humans and two completely different athletes, and you're going to get two completely different outcomes. For Wei Li Zhang, go and look at the Rosnama Yunus one fight. Rosnama Yunus clearly went and watched the first Yuani and Jacek fight right. and saw that the step up left high kick was a vulnerability. Did she think she was going to knock it out, knock her out with the first time she threw it? Almost certainly not, but she did. Then go and watch Wei Li Zhang in the second Rosnama Yunus fight. That option is very rarely there. Not in the same way, not in the same cadence, not in the same range. So you have a, a fighter in Wei Li Zhang who has gone away and she's backing up the things that she says. She says she's a true martial artist. She says that she goes away and she works as hard as she can. Well, she's backing it up, right? She went away and for a fighter that has that sort of mentality, your question was how difficult is it to fix? It's not. It's not at all. Because there was a specific moment in the first fight, and me and you talked about it in, in the fight when it happened. There was a moment that uh, Zhang Wei Li had a body lock on Yuani and Jacek, and she tried to shock her to the back, and Yuani did a really good job of centering her hips low down to stop that from happening. Zhang already had an outside trip set up and just didn't push her over to her right-hand side. The first takedown, I think, it's sleep has you know happened in between yeah. the fights but i think it was the first or the second takedown she did exactly the same thing but this time she hit the outside trip 
and down went Joanna. And I, I, you know, me and Spencer at the time said, well, fuck me. <laughs> She's gone and done it, hasn't she? You know? And I think that when you have, and I'm going to give some props to Henry Cejudo here, right? I don't know whether Henry's worked with uh, Zhang in this fight, but if, if, the, if you go to a man, if you're looking for somebody that's going to find more dilemmas to add to your grappling game, specifically the wrestling stand-up game, it's probably Henry Cejudo, right? Yeah, Hen- Henry Cejudo and Captain Eric Albertine are are very good at helping you develop those things. I don't think she was in Arizona for this camp, but Henry said yesterday, and look, everything Henry Cejudo says, please take with grains of salt. He likes to inject himself into everything at all times, always. But said we've been in communication and learning and learning and learning, and she looked great. I think for me, watching that fight and seeing that performance, again, was sort of just that reminder, as you said, it's the the fixing things and the growing from things isn't necessarily hard, but it is a choice. And what separates these elite athletes, these elite competitors like Zhang Weili from the very good or anything below that are those choices, are those decisions is the ability to not only put in the work, but go back and synthesize the information and then apply it both in the gym and in the cage. It's something we talked about. I talked about um, a couple of years ago, going into the the second Francis Ngannou, Stipe Miocic fight. I talked about it with Eric, Eric Nixick and said, look, for all the things we say about Francis being rightfully a gargantuan human being and massive athlete, the thing that really stands out to me with him is his ability to learn and process and develop and grow in leaps and bounds. And I think that's another part of this. And I I think it contributes. I think it's a piece of what I think about in terms of fight IQ that is going to continue being a major factor going forward in these next few years, especially at this elite level of things. Before we get off this fight, obviously, brilliant performance. Dana White said going in, the winner of this fight is next in line for a title fight, which means we are going to most likely at some point this year get Zhang Weili versus Carla Esparza. You guys didn't see it. I even mentioned that this was happening, and Harry is making me Jesus face. It it, it doesn't look like it's going to go very well for Carla Esparza, does it? Lads. Fuck me, this is a rough one, isn't it? I mean, <sighs> in the Rose Namajunas rematch, I was very shocked, as was everyone, that the fight turned out how it turned out. I understand why both ladies fought the way they fought, because at the end of the day, there's millions of dollars on the line here, and nobody wants to get knocked out. I don't think Zhang Weili, given the way that we have seen her progress and given the way that her fighting style is, you know, that sort of performance of Rose Namajunas is absolutely in her locker, right? 100%. The outside footwork, lots of fainting, lots of shifting, going to frustrate you, going to make you come in, make a mistake, and then I'm going to shut your fucking lights out, is in the Rose Namajunas playbook in probably chapter three or four, Right. I think we're going to have to get pretty deep 
into the you know the ends right. of the Weili Zhang book to find a Weili Zhang that's going to pace on the outside. Are you going to take Weili Zhang down? I mean, maybe. Are you going to hold her down? I fucking doubt it. Are you going to stand and bang with her? I hope not. <laughs> Are you going to get taken down by her? Maybe. She's got some disgusting tie clinch sweeps. It's a rough old fight for Carla Esparza. <laughs> if if I'm Carla Esparza, and I don't think she has a lot of say in this, I don't think she's going to carry a lot of sway in terms of, of matchmaking this. I'm working really hard to make the case for Marina Rodriguez, who I've already fought, who I've already beaten. And it was it was a close fight. I scored the fight for Marina Rodriguez. I think she did a lot of good work off her back in the third round. And I think with the focus we've had on judging, not to get into judging here over the last few weeks and months, I think if people went back and reassessed that fight, they would probably feel the same way, knowing what we know now or knowing what, having explained some more things to a few more people, Maybe they score that fight differently, but I'm with you that that is a that is a very tall hill to climb for Carlos Barza when that one comes around. Which means we could very well get our third consecutive two-time strawweight champion, which would then you know bolster Rose Namajunas's feelings because she's two and zero against Zhang Weili and and may want to get out there. So we may yeah I agree she's kind of one in one or one in question mark because that was super close but yeah i also think and i don't want to stray away from this topic because this isn't a takeaway from this fight card well i mean maybe it is like if weili zhang goes in and 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 beats carla esparza gets the title back it would be nice to see an injection of you know if it's true and yuana is is phasing out fair play to her I don't think Rose Namajunas is going anywhere anytime soon, and I'm absolutely fine with that. Carla Esparza, if she loses to Weili Zhang, you know, she's late in her career now. Does she stick around for as long as, you know, others? I don't know. That You know, there's a question there. She's reached the apex twice. Do you want to try and climb the mountain again? Especially if she does go in, feels the way that Weili Zhang feels. And it's like, ah, lads, I'm not sure I fucking want to do this anymore. Right. You know, like yep. this feels like a very different type of fighter. Um, it would be nice if the 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 reigning of Weili Zhang is the sign of allowing the older generation to start cycling out and the new generation to start cycling in. Now, there's not an absolutely massive bag of contenders in that division yet, but the UFC can allow, I think, this division to be mixed up. Weili Zhang, as we know, is an active fighter, and I think if she wants to be an active champion, we could really get that division moving. Do we see it turn a little bit like Valentina Shoshenko, where she's just smashing lasses all over the gaff? Maybe. Maybe. But maybe not. Well, and, and as you said, there are options. And so I, I concur completely. Rose Namajunas not going anywhere, but I don't necessarily need to rush her back into a championship fight off that fight with Carla Esparza without getting another win, without showing me something. But there are other fighters. Marina Rodriguez, as I mentioned, Mackenzie Dern has continued to look good and, and improve. Jessica Andrade is back in the division. 
Come on, Hibas is still in the, the division. So let's start, as you said, cycling some of these other individuals in. Which brings us to the co-main event of the evening. Valentina Shevchenko retains her title, split decision win. Not, listen, not getting into the judging. I'm not doing it. I don't want to have this conversation anymore. People can yell and shout and do whatever. Go read the criteria and correctly judge and score and give me your thoughts on all kinds of fights before I'm going to wade into the waters of arguing these things with you because it's just not worth the time. Everybody seems to forget that close fights happen, close rounds happen. Just because you thought somebody uh, something should be scored a something certain way and it isn't doesn't mean it's wrong. There is the possibility that you are incorrect. Accept that, live with that, recognize that, and then we'll we'll get better as as a community for discussing these things as opposed to just shouting and arguing and calling each other names. What I do want to talk about that we talked about in in great de- detail last night during the fight is kind of the questionable suspect decision-making of Valentina Shevchenko in this fight, kind of the first time that it felt like she was making some some wrong reads and some wrong choices um, because throughout the fight, it felt like in space, as is often the case, she is thoroughly outlanding Tyler Santos, Kind of, kind of getting off with whatever she needs to to throw, landing whatever she needs to land, was doing well in the clinch initially against the fence. You and I had had a nice little conversation about it. Had positioned all the right elements working, the way she's got her hands framed, the way where her head is, the way her body is positioned, all of those things. But that first clinch along the cage was also where we saw, okay, Tyler Santos has some strength here. Because Val goes to do what she normally does and kind of twist you off and body lock you to the ground where I land in side control or mount or whatever and work to the crucifix and we go home. And Tyler Santos is just too damn strong and kind of just fights her way out of it, is able to land in top position, and now we have a fight. And the odd thing from that is that Valentina kept going back to it and she kept trying to grapple. And she kept looking to take this fight to the ground. And I think at one point you and I both said, she's just trying to prove a point. Is that what, having slept on it now, is that that still kind of what it feels like, what it felt like was she's just, maybe she even knows that this is the wrong, but it's in her head that this is what I need to do and I need to prove it to myself that I can. Or was this just one of those nights where, Valentina Shevchenko finally looked human. I think after sleeping on it and thinking about it, I think Shawnee Podcasts has a point. On the walkout, he tweeted, Valentina looks off, question mark. I generally, there's a, I think this is like an MMA meme thing too, where I do all of my analysis. I do the preview shows. I write my articles. I do my one-man booths. But there's an asterisk to every single one of them. (laughs) And that is, let me see them walk out. When I see their face on walkout, I'm either like, yeah, I think I've got this. Or, ah, fuck. I don't know what we're doing here. And after Shawnee tweeted it, 
I, ha- I I began to look at Shoshenko a little bit more, and we didn't have the the sprucey, you know, effervescent right. name calling that we usually have. We didn't have the dancing. We didn't have the this. We had a lot of pacing. We had a lot of serious looks. We had a lot of, but serious in a different way to how she usually is. Now, these are intangibles, and I don't like to deal in them too much because I can't give an honest and well-researched and, you know, uh, fact-based, fact-based answer. Fact-based answer, yes. But what I can say is it feels like the most plausible outcome is she's carrying some form of injury coming into this fight. Because if we go and look at all of her previous fights, these sorts of slip-ups don't happen. These sorts of mental errors don't happen. That tells me something's going on that meant grappling was the most efficient way to, one, keep her healthy during the fight, and two, allow her to get through the fight and you know be efficient it's not as though she's a bad grappler right, right. like we've seen it right. against right. good grapplers we've seen it multiple times that takedown that she attempted in the first round that got her back taken is her go-to right and she hits it and did hit it exactly the same as usual maybe it was a mixture of a pre-existing injury and tyler santos being a brilliant athlete and frankly knowing what's coming Right. If I'm Tyler Santos, I go and watch every Shoshenko fight in the UFC and that takedown's in there somewhere. Right. Right. Now you're absolutely right that on the feet, as the fight got later and later and later and later, and we must talk about the headbutt or the clash of heads, because you know, that was a that was an important factor. It wasn't the most important factor, but it was an important factor. As the fight got later and later and later, Valentina started to come stronger and stronger and stronger on the feet. This is something, again, we've seen with Valentina Shashenko. She warms into fights. She's not a sprinter, right? If you gave Valentina 10 rounds and you're still in there by the 10th round, you're fucked, (laughs) right? Right. But it just felt as though she felt like, I have to get this to the ground, I have to get to the crucifix, and I have to finish it. And what happened was she ended up getting her back taken three times, I think. Yeah. Or at least lost position or ended up in a bad spot multiple times. Right. Now, again, what she was doing that was, and this is why I think in some ways it has to be an injury. You look at some of the way that she dealt with some of that back control. She was calm. She was cool. She was collected. She was fighting the hands. Okay, she wasn't addressing the body triangle, but in MMA, the most important thing is hand fighting because you can also get whacked up. But she was also dealing damage whilst having her back taken, right? Some useless fucks on Twitter were telling me that, (laughs) you know, the only reason that this fight went the way it did was because of the, uh, of, of the, the clash of heads. Well, if you look, it was either the first or the second that she had her back taken in. And Valentina was landing shots very similar to how Argueta was landing shots recently on uh, Sean Sheehan's favorite fighter, Damon Jackson. And what was what happened is when Santos got up and went back to her corner, her eye was already swelling. Right? Correct. Think about the trajectory of that shot. It's not a massive power shot, but you're arcing your body, your hips, and your arm backwards and where are you likely to hit well you know exactly where this fucker's face is because it's it's blocking you from getting out on your ear yeah 
right? Like you know exactly, and you know roughly the composition of a face. You've hit enough of them. You know where the eyes are, right? So you just start cracking ladies. And I think that I understand it's a risky maneuver because if you're not hand fighting efficiently, you're going to get choked real quick. But Valentina landed damage. And that to me is the sign of a fighter that knows where she is and isn't reacting like, you know, I'm just fucking going to batter this lady and I'm throwing right. balls to the wall and I'm having a bad night mentally. Like, blah, blah, blah. I just feel as though, and we may never know, but to me, having slept on it, I don't think it was Valentina having this anomalous, I'm going off the rails, I've bumped a line of cocaine in the back and we're going for a party. <laughs> I think it was likely the more plausible thing is something's happened in camp. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing, that we may never know. She doesn't strike me as somebody that's going to come out after the fact and say... This, is, this isn't the Jennifer Maya fight, right? She had the knee injury before the Jennifer Maya fight came out. Everybody got excited. Jennifer Maya wins around and she came out and she was like, yeah, look, I was a little rusty. I had knee surgery like six months ago. Like, fuck do you want from me? I still won four out of five rounds against a really good fighter. Like, relax, settle down. I don't think we're necessarily going to get that because this to me, and I, I think you're right. I think Sean read it perfectly on the walk. This, this wasn't the same vow that we're used to. Um, whether it's a pre-existing injury, whether it's just she was sick, whether she had the flu, like, guys, traveling to Singapore is a pain in the ass. It is a long, long flight. Being on planes isn't great for your immune system and your health in general to then go and have to cut weight and foreign land and not a lot of time and, you know, time zones and all of those things. It all contributes so it's quite possible it was just something like that. Because I, like you, don't think this was that moment that we talk about where every fighter kind of, every champion kinds of ha kind of has it where they start to regress and they're going to get caught and things like that. I don't think this was that. I really look forward to seeing her next appearance, which will, again, to what we've been saying throughout, questions and answers, proceed us to the next thing. What are we looking for the next time? Let's see if if there's shades of this in the next one, that will tell us whether this was the start of something to be truly not concerned about, but truly pay attention to, or whether this was just a night in Singapore that didn't quite go as well as we're, we're used to seeing Valentina perform. Yeah. But I do think we should say that there is absolutely a possibility here that this was an ego battle. Right. Absolutely. Valentina in the first round hits her nailed on a game takedown. Tyler Santos manages to scramble her way out, gets the dominant position. And Valentina's like, nah, fuck this. I'm not having this. And then spends the rest of the fight, you know, chasing those positions. But right. I just, the reason why I will argue myself on that is. Valentina strikes me as a type of lady that she fucks up, gets her back taken, fine. Goes back to the, to the round, and in her head, she's like, nah, I'm getting this bitch. Like, I'm going to get her. Tries it, gets her back taken again, and is like, all right, let's not be fucking stupid now. Right. I've got three more rounds. Like, I can just piece this girl up on the feet. It's fine. And that didn't happen. So, yeah, look. I, I also do want to say, and, and I think it is 
important to say, and we'll, we'll get to the clash of heads here in a second, that we have to give credit to Tyler Santos. There were a lot of people that Millions weren't necessarily of aware of who Tyler Santos was going into this. Well, you're sure as fuck aware now. Because regardless of what else was here, she did not quite everything she needed to do to win this fight. But she did better than every other person that has been in there with Valentina Shevchenko in the flyweight division thus far. And there's no reason to think she can't necessarily do it again in the future. She said after the fact, and I actually really liked it. She said, look, I'm young in my career. This isn't the first time you're going to see me in here fighting for a belt. I'm only going to get better from this. I think that is 100% facts. I think more than anything, her stock rises from this. Her profile rises from this. And she goes on to have greater opportunities as a result of this. Maybe not an immediate rematch because I don't, I'm never a big fan of the immediate rematch for a challenger who lost the fight. But go and get one good win. Go and fight, you know, the winner of the Alexa Grasso Viviani Arujo fight that's coming up. The winner of the Caitlin Chukagi and Menon Fioro fight that's coming up. Get one more. We'll see what Val's up to. And then we'll see where she's at. But, but her stock climbs a great deal in this. We mentioned the, the clash of heads that seemed to be the talking point or the the deciding piece of this fight for a lot of people. And it didn't feel that way to me. It didn't feel that way to you, as you mentioned earlier. If you go and watch between rounds and you go and see before, I forget what round the clash, I think the clash happens in the fourth round, if I'm third round, somewhere in there. Third or fourth, yeah. The damage is already starting to be there. Now, a clash of heads is as heavy as it was, and we saw multiple replays, clearly accidental, clearly a very solid clash of heads is going to exacerbate any damage that is already there. We learn after the fact that Tyler Santos is a fractured orbital bone, going to have surgery in Brazil when she gets back there. Hope everything goes well, heal up, rest up, get better, get back. But I I said it when you and I were talking and watching the fight yesterday that, that this is going to be the thing that people look to and go, Oh man, really feel bad for Tyler Santos because if not for the clash of heads, and I don't really think that was the case. It certainly changes what she's able to do and it changes the way the fight is going the rest of the way. But I think that I think that's too reductive. I think that's too finding a thing to grab onto and say this is if not for this it would have been completely different because that dismisses the Valentina Shevchenko through two rounds is even on every scorecard. And if it's through three rounds, we're pretty well in lockstep. And and the last three rounds were scored the same by all three officials. It was 10-9 Santos in the third and Shevchenko wins four and five on all three cards. So it's not like the actual outcome of that fight. Now, again, Maybe if it doesn't happen, things go a different way. But, you know, if 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 some butts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. Yeah, I mean, we cannot state that if the Clash of Heads didn't happen, the fight would have gone the same way. We can't because it's an impossibility. We will never know. I think what I would question is if you go back and look 
and watched the fight specifically, as you already pointed out, Valentina had found the read, and the read was the left hand to the right-hand side of Tyler Santos. Now, what strike broke the orbital bone? Was the orbital bone broken before the clash of heads? Who knows, right? Because let me tell you, if it was broken and then the clash of heads happened, did it make it worse? Yeah, it fucking did. Yeah, it did. Yeah, right. yeah. If the clash of heads broke the orbital bone, my question would then be, well, it was probably pretty fucking damaged to begin with because she'd taken a good amount of strikes to that specific area anyway. And if Valentina Shoshenko has a read on you and you're keeping it on the feet, she's going to find that place over and over and over and over again. So I think that it's an important talking point because it was definitely a significantly damaging strike, right? Or it, it, we shouldn't call it a strike blow, because yeah. it was, you know, it was a blow, a significantly damaging event that happened in the fight. And it definitely exacerbated the already inflicted damage to that area of Tyler Santos. But if you look at Tyler Santos, she didn't take a back step. She didn't really right. change her approach to the fight. She was like, I am grand. Your man in the corner put the end swell on it. And did a it's very good job. An amazing job. You know, it looked like it that eye was closed. And then 15 seconds later, after she sat down, she could see out of that eye again. And of course, it swelled back up. These things happen in fights. But, you know, we're looking at, did it uh, impede Tyler Santos enough that she changed her style of fighting? I would argue, no. No, it didn't. At least not to my knowledge. Right. And again another one of those those questions that we may not ever get answered somebody when she does return when she does her next interview after surgery or upon getting back i hope somebody does ask her because i'd like to hear it i don't think it did i think she still was you know trying to do the things that she wanted to do i think there's an element of this is the first time i'm going to the fourth and fifth round and i'm doing it against this woman that i can't get out of here that is that Right, because in return, Valentina is dealing with the best that Tyler Santos has to offer and dealing with it in a way that Tyler Santos isn't used to someone dealing with it. And so this was a fascinating fight to me. I do think there were some some questionable decisions made by Shevchenko that we may not find out why it was. But she reigns supreme. She has the opportunity now going forward. We'll see what happens. I think it will be a fight for the bantamweight title. I don't know whether that'll mean departing flyweight or trying to do the double champ thing. My guess would be double champ because there's no reason for her to leave just yet. You let things get sorted out with, with another set of contenders at 25 and you go and face whoever emerges from the, the rematch between Juliana Pena and Amanda Nunes, who she has history with both. And then we go from there. I hope that is somewhere at the end of the year because that, regardless of who it is, will be a fascinating fight to watch and break down and get excited for. Speaking of fascinating fights to watch and future breakdown and go back to, Yuri Prohashka, new UFC light heavyweight champion. The Mad Bastard gets it done, submits Glover Teixeira in what you and I both threw out the fight. Just, this is... This is so much fun. This is this is what we right just so enjoyable to watch, but at the same time, 
an absolute avalanche of suspect decision-making from Glover Teixeira, who from both, of them. Sur- from both of them, absolutely, absolutely, manages to survive so many different spots where you think, each of them did, where you think, this is done, this is, and then a poor decision creates an opportunity to either get out and reset or completely reverse fortunes. I mean, I don't know whether you have them listed out, whether you recall them step by step, all the different ones, but there were a lot of them from Glover Teixeira where both you and I, in watching it, just thought, what are you, what are you doing here, man? What, you have this guy dead to rights. Here's your opportunity. And the big one to me that I want you to start on is something you talked about last week and you and I have talked about plenty of times. Just make people go go belly down and and bash on them. Stop hunting submissions that aren't necessarily there. That you know the the easier path is always going to be to just mash on somebody and just do the fighting, as we were saying last night repeatedly. Just just go on and do do the fighting bit. Yeah. And Glover didn't, and it ended up costing him. Yeah, I think I do think that this is a sign. This is a sign of Glover coming from a school of MMA that doesn't exist anymore. And that's, you have somebody's back, therefore you must submit them. I think that we're going to see, this is an evolution I think that's going to change. And that's when you're in dominant grappling positions, because again, the the primary scoring criteria is effective grappling and effective striking effective striking being striking which pertains to you or a fighter looking to immediately finish the fight right so that's impactful striking that's big damage there's little place safer in mma to strike from not necessarily land the biggest power you have in your arsenal but little safer to strike from with impact than the back Right. You could argue mount, you could argue half guard, but you know, quintessentially, you know, you're not facing your opponent is not facing you, right? You right. are facing your opponent. So, you know, their ability to land damage is severely impeded in comparison to yours. I think that the the back the back stuff was actually the the, the least egregious. I think the head and arm and the guillotine were far, far more egregious. Right. But um yeah, the, the back control stuff, I just I think because the back control itself is so uh, dominant and can be so dominant, especially with a body triangle and an underhook on the far leg, if you can push a fighter, especially when a fighter is trying to rotate out, you can just bridge into their back and force them to rotate. If they want to go that way, they want to go that way in their own time. The way that they get there is by switching their hips and forcing an angle. Well, if you know that they're going to try and do that and you just bridge in and follow them up, you're going to flatten them. They're going to be belly down. And then that is the safest place for you to land shots in MMA because shoulders don't go backwards. You know That's what we look at Anacon- um, Americanas and Kimuras for, right? So for Glover, I came away from that fight feeling incredibly deflated incredibly deflated because Yuri Prohaska should not have won that fight. If, if Glover Teixeira had capitalized on one of the incredibly dominant positions that he found himself in 
and capitalized in a way that was in any way, shape or form smart. He would have won that fight and he would have had a rematch with Jan Blachowicz, who frankly, I think I'd pick him over. Um, I'd pick Glover to win that fight is what I mean. The thing that frustrated me the most is... And I'm going to go on a slight tangent here. By all means. Grappling or submission grappling in MMA, I think now has moved down Maslow's hierarchy of needs quite a way, right? What a lot of fighters talk about when they're fighting is that, oh, he wanted out, so he gave me a submission. Well, he wanted out because of one of two things, one of three, or, you know, a multitude of things. But but predominantly, the, the tangible facts that we can look at is, is that you're smashing him in the face so fucking much that he is exploding in a way that either uh, means that he's, you know, taking limbs away from the sides of his body or he's showing his neck. If either of those things are there, then it becomes an efficient choice for you, right? It means that you don't have to go searching. It means you don't have to waste time. But again, go back to the primary scoring criteria. The primary scoring criteria is damage, yeah? Damage looks like a fully locked in rear naked choke and there's gurgling and there's gargling and somehow they manage to turn the chin into the crease of the elbow, strip the hands and they, they get out, right? That's damage. Damage is a fully locked in armbar and they somehow manage to step over the head or switch their hips or come out or rotate or you know whatever it is. Damage is a heel hook that somebody takes, rolls out of, uh, you know, they get pops on the knee, they get pops in the ankle, less visible, but that's damage in a grappling perspective. Damage in a striking perspective <laughs> is when you have full mount on a guy who's tired and you're smashing elbows into his face and you've cut his fucking face open and blood's <laughs> in his eye and you're like, I know a shallow head and arm choke. Arm triangle. Shoot me in my fucking face. Let me let me turn him so that his feet can go up on the fence and he can have the leverage to buck off the fence and get me. Let me put him in the one position where he is going to be able to potentially get out of this and foil my attempt to win this fight by my signature choke that he is fully prepared for. Right. And that's exactly. And what we happened. saw, we you know, and we saw two escapes, and one I think to me was just a technical failure on Glover's position. Like, look at the way that. Okay, if you may not know who this is, but go on, there's a grappler uh, called Imanari. He's a legendary grappler. He sort of created a position called the Imanari Roll, or a new move, a technique, whatever. One of the ways that he gets out of uh, head and arm triangle, arm triangles, head and arm chokes, whatever, is he gets both of his hands in an S grip underneath one of his legs and he kicks his leg forward and that, you know, exposes his back. That's one way. Or he does the opposite where somebody's in a choke and he just flicks himself over the top, just does right. a backwards roll essentially. And the way that you stop that is by putting one of your fucking knees on a hip. So as, as they backward roll, that doesn't exist anymore because there's an obstacle in the way of a human shin. Generally a 220 pound human putting all their weight down on, on top of you. Right. And Glover knows this, right? And it's just, if you fuck it up once, fine. These things happen. It's MMA. You're fighting against somebody who right. is well-versed in submission defense. And you've, well been bashed, versed. you've been bashed about a few times. You've been bashed Absolutely. about. He's been bashed about. It's slippery. There's blood everywhere. It's sweaty. I get it. It's fine. But the second one was banged to fucking rights. 
He had everything in the right position from an upper body perspective. And then Yuri's like, this is funny. Watch this. And I'm like, oh, just fuck me, lads. What are we doing? That you was know? exactly Harry's reaction last night watching the fight. As he's, as, and bear in mind, this is as he is laboring to get to near six o'clock, dire to go to sleep, and still passionately angry at poor grappling choices, poor grappling decisions, and miscues all about. Now, it wasn't just Glover Teixeira that made bad choices. I think he made the worst choices. The guillotine attempt being to me. Oh, we're going to get onto that. Don't you worry. We're getting there. All right. Okay. Well, let's get there because it's one of those ones that it, it almost feels cliche at this point. It almost feels it's, it's become a meme, right? Every time it happens so frequently that all of us that watch the fights regularly know the minute it happens to jump on Twitter and do the like, you, you don't pull guillotines. You just, you just don't you jump don't. the gilly. You just don't. You don't. You don't. And, and, and he did. And it, it went the, it went the way that I would, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not going to go back and go through all of the, I will keep track next year when I can start from fresh and keep mm -hmm. track of, of all the fights that I watch of all of the, this guy jumped guillotine and this time it didn't work. Cause I, I would bet you it's in the like 4% range of success, which may be, which may actually be high, mm -hmm. but he tried it and it didn't work. And it, it, it ended up the way that it always ends up with the other guy on top doing the fighting. Doing the fighting. Look, if you want to go and see effective uses of guillotines in MMA, you know, not at an elite level, but you can go and watch Movsar Evloev versus, it was Brian Barberina, right? Was it Barberina? No, it wasn't Barberina. No. Who was it? Fuck. I'm going to look it up. Please hold. Go ahead. Uh, Anytime you can recommend Movsar Evloev fights, people should go and watch them. Who the fuck was it? Movsar Evloev versus... Is it, is it the Nick Lentz fight you're thinking Nick Lentz. of? Yes, exactly. So, Nick Lentz loses that fight, granted. But he uses the guillotine as a method to dissuade Movsar from putting his head in specific positions, right? Or if you want to use the guillotine, you must use it with butterfly hooks and roll to mount or just right. use it to gain top position. The right. thing, the reason why a guillotine works is because you are using your lat and your shoulder to break posture on somebody's head and force their um uh it's late i've forgotten the word what's this thing here push your adam's apple your esophagus into your own forearm the thing that's you know what you really want is you want to make them bend like an accordion right their right. neck needs to bend like an accordion and your arm happens to be in the way right that's what's choking them alongside with your bicep and your 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 rib cage right your lats the good thing about that from a sweeping perspective is it's very hard for people to base and find base when their neck is bent like an accordion, right? So if you have a butterfly hook in and you have a posting leg, you can sweep to mount usually pretty well, right? Especially if somebody's driving into you from a double leg and you get really good purchase on that neck, you're using the momentum and you can sweep them with it. Fine. These are fine applications. I think that the sweeping one is still pretty high risk, but yep. if you're going to go for a guillotine, go from it from the fucking top, lads. 
Go from it from the top. If you're passing half guard and your man sticks his neck out and you want to wrap a guillotine and go to a mounted ghillie, you go for it. If you're Brandon Royval and you've got a wicked butter choke guillotine and you can hit that because Machnell's falling into a guillotine, right. fine. No problem. But please, lads, if you've <laughs> hurt a guy in a title fight and he's wobbly and you jump a ghillie on a sweaty man, you're a oh. fucking idiot. And it was the fifth round. It was right after Glover lands probably the two cleanest blows that he lands in the fight. Like the two that are instantly telling that Yuri's in a bad way. And he jumps Gilly. And Yuri gets his chance to recover. And it goes the way it goes. I mean. So we've covered Glover. Let's cover a little bit of the new champion here because this was a fight he came out afterwards and said, look, I'm not all that, you know, GSP'd himself. I'm not all that impressed with my own performance. Um, we said during the fight, there were moments that it looked like he was very frustrated in there with himself. There were a few moments where you saw him kind of circle out and have a little bit of a huff, like, oh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. But there were some, there were some questionable decisions and questionable movements what I'm interested to, to see going forward, and I would love your thoughts on here, is whether that is going to be just part and parcel of the Yuri Prohashka experience, that there are mistakes and poor choices, or is he somebody, to what we were speaking of earlier with Zhang Weili, that is going to go back and address those things and shore up those deficiencies, fix those mistakes, to where they're not repeat offenses down the road. Yeah, I mean the obvious answer is I don't know, right? But right. I think if if we if we what I can give you is my assessment, and my assessment of Europachka as a man is that he talks often about a flow state, a disconnection from the consciousness of himself, and he morphs or transitions to another state of being outside of the consciousness of the brain. He allows the meat vehicle to just do the fighting, supposedly right? Supposedly. Right. Um, I think when you take that sort of approach to fighting, I think it's very hard to reprogram something that you're not in control of, right? Or that you're, that you're attempting to state that you're not in control of, right? Um, so by the very nature of the way that he discusses his methods of fighting, I think it's difficult to see. But look, in the same vein, he feels like he's a man that isn't thick right he feels like he's a man that's well thought out he feels like he's a man that's connected himself to fibers of the universe that allow him to get uh reciprocation of certain conversations it my mainly it's does he have people around him that like are, are gonna go get a uh like a pch monitor is what we used to call them in secondary school and play the uh play the fight and tap the board and be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> right. Yeah. You see this thing here, these 15 seconds, what the fuck are we doing lads? Like, what is this? This is dumb. This is fucking dumb. Right. Like you shouldn't be here and you were here because you made a fucking stupid decision 15 seconds ago. And if he's then able to internalize that into his training, into his rounds, into his sparring, to me, I think this flow state stuff is a gimmick. If I'm really honest, I think Agreed. the extremity Agreed. at which the extremity at which that he uh, puts this performance on, it feels like a gimmick. And if you're in a flow state, 
that flow state didn't look very flowy when you were circling out, huffing and puffing, you know, right. like you were trying to blow a house down when Glover was stood in front of you, landing jabs on your chin. I think Yuri has every ability to take this away and internalize it and get better from it. Because if not, the blueprint to beat him is fucking plain and simple. You stay in his face, you land some shots, you take him down, and you don't jump guillotines. <laughs> and you don't. One of the things you pointed out yesterday as we were watching it that I think is a, a very astute point and, and something that I think we need to talk about and we will continue to talk about going forward with Yuri as he gets more experience, as he fights more people in the UFC that are of this level. Both Volkan Oldsdemir and Dominic Reyes seemed to have moments when Yuri's out there doing Yuri things where they go, what in the fuck is this? I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with this. Whereas 42 year old seen literally everything Glover Teixeira goes, yeah, do whatever you want, man, but I'm going to be standing right here to punch you in your fucking mouth. And I think that, I think that is the piece that frustrated mm. Yuri Prohaska. I think that was the moment that made him go, wait a minute. Kind of like we said with, with Tyler Santos a little bit, right? You're so used to going in there and just hypnotizing these people and mesmerizing these people that you get the opportunity to just do your stuff. Mm -hmm. And they, they're just right there to take it and yep. Fire back. But you're always, you're always the hammer. You're not the nail. Mm -hmm. And then this old man that you think you should probably blow through because he's 42 and, Every time he takes a shot, we're screaming at each other that, oh, no, this could be the end because I'm 363 days older than Glover and I could literally project myself into his body and how I would feel in those spots. And instead of falling over, he just kind of shakes it off and then has that little smile and goes, yeah, all right, come on. Oh, okay, we're fighting. Sweet. Great. Fist fights. I like these. And yeah. I think that's the piece that fucked with Yuri Prohoshka on Saturday a little bit. And, and it's to going to me, be the interesting piece going forward. Yes. The piece going forward is, does this thing unravel now? Right. Does the, like, do we see a Michelle Pahea? Does he try and get ahead of this? And right. is he going to take this away and be like, oh, shit, lads. You know, I won the title, but. Right. My answer is absolutely fucking not. He's no. probably not going to do the, it. The, he, is, he is committed to this Because that's the shtick, right? He's that's committed the to this gimmick. Yeah, that's like the schmo taking his glasses off and being a nice human. Um, you know, the the thing that I'm questioning the most with Prohaska, though, is does he, yeah, does this unravel? What changes do we see in the next one? Because, like, who do you think's next for Prohaska? So this is it Ankalaev? Is it Blahovic? Is it? The, yeah, this is where I was going to end, and it's something we kind of touched on a little bit last night. I think it is Blahovich. Um, they had a moment when Yuri was walking out of the cage where, you know, say hi to each other, congratulations, great, I love you, I love you. And, I mean, if the UFC wants to, if the UFC wants to do something massive in Europe, those two fellas in the big, the big Coliseum that KSW uses, shout out to KSW, um, yeah, you can That's do it. One. Build build a colossal European card with those two in the main event in Poland with whatever it is, 60, 70,000 people. And you can do it and it'll be massive. And I think 
I don't, I don't like champion former champions getting the shot right away after one win. It feels even more janky here because Jan gets a, a injury win. I thought he was winning the fight, but still Alexander Rakic's knee blew out. It wasn't a, I'm out there beating the hell out of him kind of performance. The trouble is, is that there's nobody behind Bohovic at this point that makes a lot of sense. Everybody's booked. I don't think Uncle Iov is quite ready. You you expressed that last night as well, that he still needs some of those tests and some of those learning experiences. And so this is where, this is the other piece of what's interesting. I think Prohashka has a chance to get a couple wins here, to successfully defend this title a couple of times because despite what we're talking about with some mistakes and some questionable decision-making and things like that, the power is clearly there. The offense is clearly there. He's a big human being that moves exceptionally well. He was still fit and active and, and game throughout that fight. And that's going to be the interesting piece is, is can he make the adjustments now that he's champion and use that to successfully go forward until we get to that point where maybe a new crop of, of contenders or even some of these old ones revamp things and get back in line an Anthony Smith. I don't think Tiago Santos, but somebody in that vein, maybe Glover again. So if we take some of the immediacy, some of the immediate points out of that fight. And the biggest thing we've just talked about is Glover not biting on the feints. Glover not accepting the bullshit. Go and watch Jan Blahovic versus Israel Adesanya. Yes. And tell me who bites on whose feints. You know? I think my question of the reason why I eat, and we spoke about this uh, off, offline, but I'll you know happily say it here. I picked Yuri round two finish. And I picked Yuri round two finish because I couldn't trust that 42-year-old Glover wouldn't do Glover things and get cracked and try to out-tough it. And I just felt like Yuri would be mad bastard enough to hit him, hurt him, drop him, and then finish him. Now, he did all of the things other than the finishing, and he just did it in the wrong order, and he did it in the wrong round, right? Um, but the more that I thought about it, the more that I went back and you know revisited the Glover archives in my brain, I thought, you know what? He is a tough cunt, though. <laughs> you know? Right. He really is a tough cunt. And I question whether Jan Blachowicz, given his performance against Glover, has the same ability to stick in there when Yuri does inevitably land those shots. You know, against Glover, it just took one left hand. Yuri took everything Glover had and kept on trucking. Equally, Glover took almost everything that Yuri had and kept on trucking. I don't know whether Jan Blahovic takes everything that Yuri has and keeps on trucking. I think Glover was, as it turned out, a pretty perfect stars matchup for Yuri because he had the perfect elements in it. The reason why I don't like the Magomed Ankolaev is because we haven't seen him take a huge shot from an elite fighter. We right. haven't seen him in super dominant position and then somebody escapes. We haven't seen him in the real depths of a gritty war of a five-round fight. We've not seen it. Right? 
I need to see all of those things. I need to see it not going Ankolaev's way. I need to see a Valentina Shevchenko type fight where right. Ankolaev tries to take down and ends up with his back taken. He's like, "Why? we're 35 seconds into a fight. What the fuck's that mean, lads? Like, well, I didn't expect to be here. I need to see all of these types of tests before I'm like, yeah, send him off to the races. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if it is Jan Blachowicz, I think there are some elements in there that I think will cause Yuri big old problems. But in the same vein, if Jan stands in the pocket and is like, yeah, yeah, all these, you know, karate signs are cool and stuff. Watch this, watch this left hook and a body kick. <laughs> right. And Yuri's like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. It tastes nice. Watch this right hand. And Jan's like, oh, not sure I like that so much. Yuri's going to be like, well, this is cool. I'm going to blow the fuck through you now. Yeah. So. It, it's going to be interesting. For the first time, I feel, actually, I shouldn't say that. When Jan, when Jan Bohovic rose to the top, I thought light heavyweight got interesting again. It's interesting now that it's the third champion in four fights. I think there are some interesting matchups on the horizon. I think there are some questions that we have that will wait and look forward to being answered. That is what you and I love about these things. That is what anybody that sat through this hour and 40 minutes has to love about things because God bless you for listening to us do this. It is the next day takeaways for UFC 275. Before we get out of here, I have to do it. Go follow him at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. He's rolling his head. He's giving me the waves and all of that stuff. He's brilliant. Kid knows what he's talking about. Listen to all this stuff. Go listen to all of the Severe MMA podcasts. Follow Ian O'Neill at MMA. Follow Sean Sheehan at Sean Sheehan BA. Follow Sean Denny at Denny Rants. Follow Andy Stevenson. Follow Graham McDowell. McDonald. McDonald. I always screw that up. Sorry, Graham. Get me on the payroll. I'll get it right. <laughs> follow the boys follow me at spencer kite enjoy whatever comes to start this week we've got a really great card coming up on saturday it's one of those cards that is going to get kind of overshadowed because this has given us so much to talk about but it is a very good card closed out by a very interesting fight in the featherweight division between calvin cater and josh emmett that we are going to break down i will break down in the newsletter we will break down on the preview show later this week on severe there will be lots of stuff because we we love the fights and we love seeing people do the fighting. And we thank you for listening. We appreciate your time. Know that you're loved. Know that we want you here as much as we can. Be good to yourselves. Be good to one another. We'll talk to you next Sunday.